What a joy and a privilege to gather together and sing with one another. Let's pray. Father, we sung our prayer to you that you would speak, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that you would change our hearts and our desires, that we would be different today as a result of uh, studying and learning and growing in our knowledge of who you are, what you've accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf and applied to us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd be pleased and glorified this morning in us, in the way that your word is handled and taught, in the way that it's received. Lord, humble our hearts. May we receive what you have for us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it was about a year ago today, Matthew had just led us beautifully in worship. We were meeting outside because we were trying to do our best to honor the civil authority that was placed over us by the Lord. Um, It was about 68 degrees and sunny. I was in the middle of preaching my sermon. I had a black music stand and my iPad overheated. And I thought it was just a warning. It said overheating, and I said, okay, and it died. (laughs) Thankfully, I had access to my other notes, but I'm trusting the Lord that it might go a little smoother this morning. What a a joy. We've been able to be back in our building for a year now and gathered together. Thankful for that. We're walking through the book of Luke, paragraph by paragraph. We've just finished several different narratives where the opposition to Jesus has been escalating rather quickly. It began with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes specifically, questioning in their hearts, does Jesus actually have the authority to forgive sins? And and it moved to these same leaders confronting the disciples on whether Jesus should be hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. It it escalated further as as Jesus would heal and he would allow his disciples to pluck grain and eat uh, that food on the Sabbath as Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. The, the, The confrontation, the tension began to grow and it came to a head in chapter 6 verse 11 where it said the Pharisees then they'd had enough, they'd have, they'd had enough of Jesus And they gathered together to see how they might be rid of Jesus Christ. And it's amidst this opposition then that Jesus is going to select and begin to equip and begin to train his disciples, the disciples, that they might be sent out and preach the message of the gospel following his death and resurrection. And so that's what our passage is centered on this morning, the calling of the 12 or the selection of the 12 to train and to equip. But first, first Jesus prays. We see that in verse 12. That's the first point. If you keep track, you have the notes. Jesus responds to opposition and prepares to organize his disciples through prayer in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. 
Now that, that in these days, that's just a, that's just a time marker. It's just saying around this time, again, around the time that this opposition to Jesus is growing and growing and growing, it was in this time that Jesus set out to pray. So looking back, we see the opposition growing. Looking forward, Jesus will be selecting the 12 disciples. And in the middle, then we see Jesus in prayer. He escapes the crowd for the evening, heads up to the top of a mountain that he might commune with his Father in prayer. We see this often in the Gospels. We see it often in Luke where Jesus specifically prays before significant uh, events like the selecting of the twelve. He prays before the Mount of Transfiguration. And of course, we all know, uh, likely know that he prays in the garden before his crucifixion when his disciples couldn't even stay awake to uh, pray with them. He's pouring out his soul to the Father. So over and over and over again, Jesus is escaping to pray. He's escaping to pray. He's escaping to pray. And we've been arguing, and I know some of you are just here for, for one week and but we've been arguing over and over and over again from the text that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he has left heaven to come to this earth to save sinners from their sin. So that raises a question, in my mind at least, if Jesus is God in the flesh, why does Jesus need to pray? Well, we have to keep a couple things in mind first, and we've argued this even in Luke 1 and 2, but we need to consider the Trinity for a moment. You might hear us talk about the Godhead at times. We are talking about God as a three-in-one tri-unity. The Bible clearly teaches that God eternally exists as three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons, but there is one God. There is only one God. There is not three gods. Jesus would say in, his, uh, in John's gospel that I and the Father are one. So you have one God eternally existing in three persons. They're co-equal. They're co-eternal. They're, they're of the same substance. The Son of God then was sent by God the Father to this earth to accomplish the eternal plan of salvation. And in sending Jesus, Jesus then takes on the fullness of humanity. He's fully man and fully God. There's these two natures in Jesus. They're, they're, they're distinct, but they're inseparable. You can't pull them apart. Um, but they're not intertwined like this either. He takes on the form of a servant. He takes on humanity. He humbles himself. And in order to do this, and in order to identify with man, and in order to be a sympathetic high priest, Jesus submits himself to the authority of the Holy Spirit and to reliance on God the Father and reliance on the Word of God. So we've been arguing in, in different places in Luke that even though Jesus had every right and every authority to say, I don't need to pray to the Father, I can go here, I know who the 12 are, right? Let's, let's go. You, you 12, I know, the, I know the deal. He doesn't. He chooses in humility to submit himself and to pull an all-nighter in prayer. The other question, then, at least in my mind, is what is he praying for? 
Well, the text doesn't exactly come out and say it, but we might take a stab based on the context that he's uh, praying that he would fulfill the will of the Father and choosing the 12 men who would be disciples and eventually apostles. If we think about John 17 as well, we might surmise that perhaps Jesus is praying for those whom he would choose. We aren't explicitly told, so we don't want to spend too much time guessing. But one thing we do know is Jesus is up on that mountain all night, communing and praying with the Father. Now, one thing that's true about all-nighters is they show a sense of urgency, a sense of necessity. Somebody, or nobody says, you know, I've got a deadline in four months. I think I'll pull an all-nighter tonight. No, it shows a sense of urgency, necessity of prayer. And so Jesus is up all night teaching, modeling for us the necessity, the urgency of prayer. And I think that's one way that we recognize, man, I desperately need God's grace because I so often lack this urgency that Jesus demonstrates here. We too often want to rely on our own strength, on our own wisdom, and our own abilities, whether it's in parenting or wrestling with loneliness or singleness or whether it's our ministry here at Southern Hills, we too often think, man, I've got this. I can handle this. I can do this. Now, we would never say that. We would never express those words, but we demonstrate it. We demonstrate a reliance on ourselves, a trust in ourselves, a belief in our own abilities when we are prayerless and we lack that urgency in prayer. The reformer Martin Luther said that he prayed an hour every day except when he had a particularly busy day. Then he prayed two hours. Now the point isn't to to put some kind of standard over us about how long we should pray and when we should pray, but notice the urgency in Luther's quote. When it's a busy, busy day, Man, I know at that time I need to pray more. I need God's grace in that moment. I need to go to the Father who knows how to give good things to his children. And we see this in the book of Acts, actually. You see the early church following the example that Jesus sets. I mean, we could go through Acts for a long time. I've just picked a few passages in the first few chapters In chapter 1, all these, 120, are gathered, and they are found, what? They are praying. In Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. In Acts 4, in the face of persecution and threats and the threat of violence, Acts 4 says, when they heard this, they lifted their voices together and prayer to God. It sounds sim- simple, maybe it is, but if Jesus prayed, if the early church, the eyewitnesses, many of them to the resurrected Jesus needed to pray, then I guess the application is simple this morning for verse 12 anyways, I need to pray. So now that many of us have been considering our own lives and we're maybe 
this small before the Lord. Let's, let's remember this, that Jesus not only sets the example, he's much more than an example for us. He also gives undeserved kindness and goodness and grace to those who are often, too often, faithless in prayer. So don't hear me saying this morning that, that you know, if you pray a lot, God will really love you. If you pray a lot, God will give you extra grace. That's, that's not what I'm saying. He's shed his blood for us. For all the times that we've lacked in our prayers, all the ways that we've not only sinned in this one specific way, but all the ways we rebelled against him in a million different ways. And now, God holds the work of Christ up for us as the means by which we can pray. Jesus has made prayer possible through his sacrifice. We are ushered in, we are welcomed in and invited to pray personally with God the Father, the creator of the universe. So we come boldly and confidently, the text says, not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own goodness, but only on the basis of the work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus has made prayer, not only the example, but he's made it possible for us. So Jesus goes and he pleads and he prays. He knows he must select men to preach the gospel to all the nations. He's labored all night, and now he's ready to select and set aside his 12, specifically his 12 disciples. Let's read about it again in verses 13 through 16. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Point number two is really simple. Jesus calls the disciples I was confessing to Dave earlier, it's hard, it's hard when you have a list of names to figure out how do I preach this passage, how do I preach this text. What I want to do is walk through the list here, and then we'll make some implications, draw some applications at the end. So when day finally broke, Jesus calls his followers, a, a, a multitude together, and chose from them twelve that he would specifically spend time investing in, teaching, training, and equipping. So when you read your Bible, you need to know sometimes the word disciples refers to a, a large group, and sometimes it's the disciples, the group of 12 that Jesus specifically pours into. The context will tell you which group he's talking about. And so our passage is really easy because it says he calls them all together and he selects from them 12. So we, we know that he's calling the disciples. Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father as he's just prayed and pleaded all night. So don't let there be this huge break between verse 12 and verse 13 just because I had two different points. Don't let that happen. Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father with who was selected. And we know that Jesus comes down, the text says that he chose. The 12. 
This is God's initiative. This is God's good plan. This is God's good will. There weren't applications sent out. There weren't resumes coming in. Jesus, for his own purposes and in accordance with his own will, he chooses a specific group of men. Jesus would later remind these disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He names these men then apostles. Now the word apostles like that word disciples. Sometimes it's used kind of broad. Barnabas is called an apostle, even though he's not one of the 12 here. So sometimes it's used broadly. Sometimes it's used more specifically as the 12 men that would go out and preach and and lay the foundation of the church on the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. And so at this point, we we would say, These men likely don't understand exactly what it means to be an apostle. They're probably thinking of it more in terms of the general call. It would be to be a messenger, to be an official representative of Jesus Christ. An apostle or a representative or a messenger would carry the same authority when they spoke as the one who sent them because they're not coming with their own message. They're coming with the message of the one who sent them. So these 12 men, minus you know Judas, plus Matthias and Paul in there somewhere, would eventually become the apostles who would go out and preach the resurrected Christ and lay the foundation of the church. So let's think about the list then. There's basically three groupings of four names. So it seems to me the easiest we'll take these three groups one at a time. We'll talk through who these men are. Again, then we'll make some applications. Group one, the first four. This is the group that we know the most about by far. From this four, there'd be three particularly that that Jesus would have sort of an inner circle with, Peter, James, and John. And Peter is the first on the list. In fact, there's four lists of disciples given to us in the New Testament, and Peter is first in every list. He had a place of prominence among the disciples. A few weeks ago, we were in chapter 5, and we saw the calling of Peter to follow Jesus. We saw that Jesus demonstrated his glory and his power and his authority by telling the professional fishermen how to fish. And Peter's like, I don't know, man, I kind of do this for a living. And Jesus, he said, just, just do it. He throws his net over and the nets are breaking. And Peter falls down in front of Jesus, says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he leaves everything. He leaves his job and he follows Jesus. Peter is not only first on the list, he's often, as you read the Gospels, the first to speak or the first to act, and sometimes this gets him in a little bit of trouble. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter and James and John are allowed to go up and they see the glory of Christ, Peter thinks, man, this would be a good time for me to make a proclamation. And he starts talking, and God the Father says, listen to my Son. In John 1, 42, Jesus would give Simon a new name. He would be called Peter, meaning rock. 
indicating his leadership role and also foreshadowing his function as uh, one of the founders of God's church. It was, again, I don't want to I don't want to quit saying Jesus is the cornerstone in which it is built. So you have Simon, Peter, you have Andrew, who is Simon's brother, and that's how he's known. I mean, that's just kind of who he is. You're Simon's brother. Camera phones were not really a thing when I was still living with my parents. They were, they were really coming into popularity as I went off to college. So as it became easier and easier to snap photos and have them printed off, my, my little brother all of a sudden had these shrines all over the house. And so my older brother and I would always joke that, that man, Brian's got all these pictures all over the house, and we're kind of relegated to nothing more than Brian's brother. Now that was all in good fun, but that's, that's how Andrew is presented in the text. He is characterized by his relationship to Simon. In John's gospel, before you even meet Peter, you meet Andrew first, and it says, that's Peter's brother. So despite his being characterized that way, Andrew recognized the Messiah before Peter. The Apostle John records that Andrew was listening to John the Baptist as Jesus approaches. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he runs, and he gets his brother, and he brings him to Jesus. Now I'd argue this is likely before the, the, the formal call while Peter was fishing. But D.A. Carson wrote this about Andrew. He thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is a private witness of friend to friend and brother to brother. He sees the Messiah, he runs and gets his brother and brings him back. So like his brother, Andrew, was a fisherman. He pops up here and there in the Gospels. He's one of the ones who notices, hey, Jesus, I don't know, we've got to feed all these people. There's five loaves and two fish down here. But we don't know that much about him. He, he's mostly in the background as Peter kind of rises to a level of prominence. So you've got Simon, you've got um, Andrew. So you've got two brothers. And then the, the first group of four is rounded out again by two other brothers, James and John. They were actually fishing partners with Andrew and Peter. James, along with his brother, are called Sons of Thunder. We talked about that a little while back. You know, as cool as it would be, that doesn't mean their dad was named Thunder. It means they were characterized by this thunderous, you might say fiery, personality. In fact, Jesus rebukes them in Luke 9, as Jesus is rejected, and, and James and John say, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these guys? One, one author wrote, Andrew wanted to bring the unsaved to Jesus. James wanted to incinerate them. <laughs> Another instance had James and John kind of vying for a place of prominence with Jesus. Even their mother came and said, hey, you know, maybe my boys could be elevated to a position of prominence. And that made the other disciples 
angry. But as they sought power, as they sought prestige, prestige, Jesus taught them to be servants. He instructed them that the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, the first are last and the last are first. He taught them that true greatness is humility and humility is serving others when it costs you something. So the sons of thunder then began, became servants of Christ. James's death is the only death we have recorded for us in the New Testament of uh, an apostle. Herod wanted to stop the spread of the gospel, wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, so he put James to death by the sword. One early historian was, was um, writing about the events that Uh, surrounded the death of James, and he wrote this. The man who led James to the judgment seat, seeing James bearing his testimony to the faith, and moved by this fact, confessed himself a Christian. Both, therefore, were led away to die. The one who wanted to incinerate the unbeliever now leads one into glory upon his death. You've got James, you've got John, again, they're brothers. Besides Peter, we, we probably know the most about John. He was with Andrew when John the Baptist pointed out, behold, the Lamb of God, and he began following Jesus full time at the same time as Peter when they're fishing on the side of the boat. John is actually often in the book of Acts recorded as sort of a close associate of Peter, as they minister together. In Galatians, Paul calls them both pillars of the church in Jerusalem. The opponents of the gospel noticed a boldness in John. And in the book of Acts, as they recognized that him and Peter had been with Jesus. They were threatened to quit preaching the gospel. And and both of them say, well, should we obey this? Or should we obey what God has called us to do? Should we testify to the fact that we have seen the risen Christ? John is obviously the, gospel, the author of the gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation. He often refers to himself, you'll notice him in the gospel, John as the, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So that's the first group. That's the most prominent group. That's the group we know the most about. There's a second group. We know a little bit less about these guys. We know some. We know they weren't part of this inner circle of the three, but obviously they're they're disciples, they're apostles. They play an important role. First we find Philip. Jesus finds Philip in John 1, calls him to follow himself. And like Like Andrew, Philip runs and finds someone else. He finds Nathanael, and he introduces Nathanael to Jesus. We get a few, kind of like Peter, a few boneheaded moves by Philip. Jesus tests Philip at the feeding of the 5,000 and asks, you know, hey, Philip, where do you think we can get enough food uh, to feed all of these people? And Philip's like one of those logical mathematician types he's like i don't we would 220 
denarii wouldn't feed all these people. There's no way we have enough money. We don't have enough time. We can't get to the store. So he missed. Jesus was trying to reveal his lack of faith to him. Another sort of disappointing moment for Philip is when Jesus is clearly laying out his deity, describing, as we, just, we, we talked about earlier, the Trinity, his unity with the Father. Since there's one God to have seen Jesus is to have seen the Father. And Philip says, after all that, Jesus, show us the Father. I don't know if you teachers ever feel this way where you you know, you instruct and you instruct and you instruct, and the question is, like, what you just said. I had a friend in school that would troll teachers that way, and they would say, all right, don't forget, the homework is due on Tuesday, and he would raise his hand and say, so when's the homework due? That's sort of what Philip does here. He just, he just heard it, and he turns around and makes a statement showing that he had failed to grasp it. Now, we'll see in a moment. We're not meant to just laugh at Philip. And say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. We're meant to really humbly accept that we are a lot more like the disciples than we care to admit. So you've got Philip and then you've got Bartholomew. The, the prefix bar there, it just means son of. You might see Simon referred to as bar Jonah, son of Jonah. So this is uh, Bartholomew, the son of Ptolemy. If you cross-reference then with, with John, I know this is a, a lot of info, so just track with me. But if you, if you cross-reference with John, the son of Ptolemy, Bartholomew, is Nathaniel. Now, we would argue that for a couple reasons. One, Philip is uh, the one who brought Nathaniel to Jesus, and they appear together in almost all the lists of the disciples. Um, also, it seems like John talks about this Nathaniel guy. The, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Bartholomew. You might say they never appear in the same room together. Um, it's like Clark Kent and Superman. They're never together. So they are likely the same person. And then another argument, I think, probably maybe the strongest one. In John 21, there's a list of apostles, disciples, who, who say, all right, we're going to go fish. You know, we're going to give up on this. Jesus is dead. He, they haven't realized the resurrection yet. And every name on that list is an apostle. And Nathaniel's on that list. So it's likely that they are the same guy. So I'm going to refer to him as Nathaniel or Bartholomew, either one. We don't know a ton about Nathaniel. He is the one who did ask early on in John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm sure you remember that line. And uh, Philip says, hey, come and see. Come and see. And when Jesus first saw him, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And after Jesus demonstrates that he knew Nathaniel before he even met him, um, he confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, man, if you think that's impressive, just wait. Then we have Matthew. We saw last uh, week, no, a couple weeks ago, the call of Levi, the tax collector. That is Matthew, the disciple, who is the author of the gospel according to Matthew. 
Matthew had gone into the business of tax collecting, which was a low and a despised occupation, and rightfully so. They were abusers, they were thieves, they were crooks, they had a poor reputation, and it was well-deserved. But Matthew, we saw, gave it up to follow Jesus. And he subsequently threw a party so that his friends who are sinners and tax collectors might know Jesus. And so Jesus hurt his reputation with the religious elite in Israel by hanging out with people like Matthew. And Jesus instructed those who tried to confront him on this, that he's it's not the well who need a physician. It's the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. So after this public call of Levi, we don't hear much about him. Then there's Thomas, who rounds out this group too. When Jesus insisted on returning to Judea, where there were many there who wanted to kill Jesus, Thomas's reply was, let's go with him so that we might die also. So I want to start with the good before we get to what Thomas is often known for. He's sometimes called Doubting Thomas. He insisted after the reports of the resurrection were, were, were beginning to fill the streets that he wouldn't believe it until he could see Jesus and he could touch the wounds of Jesus. Then I will believe. And Jesus in his kindness and his, in his grace reveals himself to Thomas. And when Thomas sees Jesus, he falls down and confesses with his mouth, my Lord and my God. All doubt faded from Thomas, and he gave his life to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, history is not authoritative the way the Bible is, but history suggests that Thomas went to India and was killed there for preaching Christ. All right, we've made it to group three then. This is the group we know the least about. Besides Judas Iscariot, we know very little about the other three. First is James, the son of Alphaeus. We do know that who he's not. This is not James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle of James. All right, John 7 makes it really clear that Jesus' family did not initially believe until after the resurrection. He is the son of Alphaeus. Levi is also called the son of Alphaeus, so there's a chance that they are brothers. There's also a chance that their dads have the same name. So we don't want to be dogmatic where Scripture isn't. So we've got James, the son of Alphaeus. You've got Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a nationalist political movement. A historian named Josephus tracked their beginnings to like 86 A.D., not 80. A.D. 6, they opposed Rome's occupation, oftentimes violently. They became somewhat of a terrorist organization seeking to overthrow the Roman Empire. They would be willing to kill Romans and to kill Jews that they considered traitors to Israel if they had the opportunity and they felt like the target was right and the necessity presented itself. They were not above taking the lives of others. We'll come back to that in a moment. This was what Simon was known for. Third, you have Judas, the son of James. Really, this Judas is, is just known in Scripture as not the Judas. 
he's pointed out like Judas, not Iscariot. That's how he's described. And then we get to Judas, a name we are familiar with, a name we know. He's the treasurer among the group who helped himself to offerings. He was a thief. He even sought at times to manipulate the group to giving more money to the pot so that he can help himself to more money, all under the guise of wanting to help the poor. Judas is obviously best known for his betrayal of Christ. With a kiss, he showed the Roman soldiers who was the one they were after, Jesus Christ. Jesus was immediately arrested, put on a mock trial, and crucified. Judas was overcome with what I think Paul would describe as worldly grief, worldly guilt, but he decided to end his life rather than truly repent. For this betrayal, Judas ends up last on the list of disciples, except the one in Acts. He's not there because he had ended his own life. Now, this selection of Judas is not an accident. It's not an oversight. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the 12, knowing full well that Judas was, as John describes him, a devil, and knowing he was a betrayer. You know, in our last paragraph, Jesus enraged the Pharisees, and we said that Jesus was very aware that this would start the countdown clock. This would start the timing of his own death. This is the moment where they're going to get together and they're going to plot how they might destroy Jesus. And now he chooses the very man who will turn him over to the authorities. Jesus is laying the foundation. He is setting the stage for his own death. Why would he do that? Because it's the mission for which he came. It's the reason why he entered creation, so that he might die on a cross for our sins, so that we might be credited then with the righteousness of Christ if we would throw ourselves at his mercy, if we would throw ourselves at the cross and say, God, there's nothing in me that would commend myself to you. All I have to offer is sin. And if we would throw ourselves at God's mercy, Jesus says, all I have to offer you is righteousness. Let's trade. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 affirms for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus has set the stage. He's laid the foundation for his own death so that we might escape the penalty for sin, which is indeed death, not only physical death, but eternal separation is Uh, Dave prayed earlier, eternal separation from God. We might be rescued, we might be redeemed from that based on the work of Christ. So let's look at a few, two implications then in the time we have left. Number one, Jesus equips the weak and empowers them to fulfill his mission. Jesus calls the weak, he equips the weak and empowers them to fulfill his mission. Now, a lot of things we described about the disciples, the apostles, does not make them look great, does not make them look accomplished. A lot of what's recorded is their lack of understanding, their lack of belief, their lack of obedience, their lack of 
timing, their lack of faith, all of it. They lack, 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 lack. In fact, one of the reasons you should believe the gospel accounts is because the ones who wrote it did not make themselves out to be heroes. Well, why? Because they recorded the truth about themselves instead of a made-up story about themselves, and they recorded that they were weak, and they were frail, and they were feeble, and they were sinners. Jesus did not put together an all-star cast so that we can look, why did he do that? So that we can look at these men and say only God could have accomplished what these men did. Only God could have done that. If he puts together an all-star crew, we look at God and say, wow, he, he really did do a good job of picking the best of the best, but the best went and did a good job. Instead, Jesus calls ordinary people to himself, empowers them through his Holy Spirit so that God receives all the glory and not man, and that this message of the gospel might go forth. And God is pleased and glorified as sinners come to know Jesus through ordinary people, preaching and proclaiming and sharing the truth. You see, if we see ourselves properly, this should actually fill us with a sense of hope. If we are humble enough to admit our inability, to admit our own weakness, to admit our feebleness, then we are in a position for God to be glorified through us. We come humbly before Christ to be used by Him because He uses weak people and He empowers them to fulfill His mission which is great news for those who are willing to admit that they are weak. So Jesus equips the weak and empowers them to fulfill his mission. Secondly, we might say Jesus calls a diverse group and unites them in his person and mission. You know, it'd be fun to spend more time talking about the different personalities of each disciple that tend to come through with these stories. You know, we joked about Peter being brash and out front and sometimes putting his foot in his mouth. Some were doubtful, some were courageous, some were thunderous. So it'd be fun to kind of talk about the diversity of personality there. It'd be fun to spend some time thinking about their different occupations. Some were tax collectors, some were fishermen. That'd be kind of fun to talk about the diversity there. But perhaps the clearest example that Jesus calls people that are completely different and unites them to himself and to his mission is found in Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Before following Jesus, Matthew was profiting off the abuse of his fellow Israelites, and Simon thought he should be put to death for this. Yet in Christ, In Christ, they're both called to give up their idols and come and follow Jesus. I've told myself all week, no jokes about God being able to save Democrats and Republicans. So I won't go there. In Christ, they're both. they got a radical nationalist and and, and one who has sold out to Rome. They're both called to leave their idols and come and follow Jesus. Each saw the the glory of the Lord and so chose to abandon their positions, abandon their previous commitments, and follow Jesus wherever that led them. I think this is a a precursor. It's It's a picture to the church. 
We're different types of people from various backgrounds and various languages and various ethnicities and various political affiliations and various economic status and interests are united together, not around common interests or hobbies, but united around Christ and what he has called us to do. And man, what a What a radical opportunity we have in our culture and in our world to be united in Jesus Christ. We live in a world that is pulling us seemingly into tighter and tighter circles. We are being taught to despise those who are different than we are. We are canceled and we cancel others that don't think exactly like us. We should, we should cancel our rivals. And what an opportunity we have to, to be united together in Jesus Christ, to point to the world that we are in him. And if we are in him, we are united together. Part of Jesus' work is reconciling sinners to God. And he also reconciles sinners to one another. So we should be at work. I'm not calling for a lack of discernment. I'm not saying, hey, everybody who claims to be a Christian, we should affirm their salvation. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at for our church in particular, we should be those who work hard to preserve the unity of faith and the bond of peace for the sake of Christ and for the sake of God's glory. There's been a lot of pressure on churches this last year. And I praise the Lord that he has protected our church. But, man, we are not above, we are not above division sneaking in and causing disruption. So it doesn't mean we don't hold to doctrinal standards. It doesn't mean we don't hold to doctrinal truth. It does mean, though, as a body of Christ, we don't assume the worst in others. We refuse to make fourth and fifth. 15th tier issues, primary issues that we're going to fight about and allow it to cause division. It does mean that we love one another and we forgive one another as we inevitably will sin against one another. We move towards one another in love and unity and not away from one another. And we do this because we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. He has purchase this unity for us we are called in scripture to maintain it preserve it we don't we don't have to create it jesus did that for us we just preserve it and we are united in jesus christ so we might then wrap up this way as we look at the list and as you look at the the surrounding context of opposition we might conclude this There are two ways to reject Jesus and one way to follow him. There are two ways to reject Jesus. The first way would be those the way of the Pharisee. This is outright rejection. They're not hiding, they're not pretending, they're not acting like they love Jesus. Again, in chapter 6, verse 11, they begin to conspire about how they might be rid of Jesus. This culminates in the death of Jesus, and the religious leaders think they've won the day. The one way to reject Jesus is just outright denial and opposition and hatred for Jesus. There's another way. So you have outright rejection. I would say another way is subtle manipulation. We see this in Judas. We see it in Judas I would warn you to beware of wanting all the benefits of following Jesus without truly making Christ Lord of your life. 
man, it's tempting to think, okay, if Jesus can just come alongside me and give me what I want without truly turning to him in repentance and faith. See, Judas got money out of this deal. He got some close friends out of this thing. He learned a lot from the greatest teacher to ever walk the planet, but ultimately he reveals that he was in it for himself the whole time. We ought to be aware that our hearts can deceive us. We can be blind to this. If, if, if your conception of Jesus is that I can have Jesus and my sin, I can have Jesus and I can have my way, I can have Jesus and absolute autonomy. I don't want Jesus to be able to tell me how to live. I don't want Jesus to be able to demonstrate authority in my life, but I don't want to go to hell, so I'll just kind of bring Jesus in on the side here, and we'll just go where I want to go. The warning of Scripture is God will not be mocked, and he knows the heart of every person. If you were here this morning thinking that Jesus has just come to aid you, I would tell you, turn to Christ fully and finally. Submit to him as the Lord of the universe and the one who has accomplished your salvation. There's only one correct way to follow Jesus. That's to humbly confess your sin and to trust that Jesus is God who has come down to this earth to rescue from the penalty that we all deserve and to rely on his sacrificial work to believe in the resurrection of Christ and to turn and follow Jesus. And for those of you who have trusted Christ, I would implore all of us this morning, keep going. Keep pursuing Christ. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Pursue Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and we're thankful for your word that instructs us. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the word of the gospel that bears fruit and in your Holy Spirit that opens eyes to see the glory of the gospel. Would you do in every heart what is necessary? We love you, Lord, and we're thankful. Thankful for the kindness we've been given in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.